Some Random Notes by Clayton Knight. Looking backwards from age 78, and it seems likely we all do that, for a general summing up of our minor accomplishments, our stumbling mistakes that should have been avoided, to an undistinguished but a thoroughly untroubled and happy childhood during the 1890s, calls up a kaleidoscopic chain of events, participation in two world wars, and tumultuous world changes to a series of quick and transient trips to many parts of the globe. An inherited wanderlust from an ingrowing and in some ways peculiar father with little ability to express his thoughts may have been the urge that sent me off on my early journeys that now crowd the reservoir of memories of my later years of talks with undistinguished distinguished men of several continents and lesser characters in South America or lonely Pacific Islands. Many of them, while I was making drawings and sketches, are digging out items of interest. My father was a carpenter when he moved to Rochester with his bride, my mother, where both had been raised in a tiny hamlet called West Reading, about 20 miles to the west. Both had English forebears. My mother, Elizabeth Brooks, was the youngest child of Stephen and Mary Brooks, who had come from England as a young couple with one son. In West Sweden, they had two more boys and three girls. My father, Frederick Clayton, was the oldest son of Cyrus Knight, a typical Yankee farmer, and the former Elizabeth Marlton, who was born in Jamaica, British West Indies, the daughter of Clayton Marlton, the governor of the constabulary on the island and said to be the illegitimate son of the Duke of Marlborough. My father lately hotly denied this. My grandmother told me that her parents had both died within a few days of each other during a plague of cholera in Jamaica, and she, at the age of 12, and the other older children, now orphans, were separated and sent to distant relatives in Canada. She went to an aunt near Three Rivers, Canada, where she and my grandfather met much later. They were married while the Civil War was being fought, and soon he joined up on the northern side, resplendent in a fine black beard. She did not see him for over two years, and when he returned, his beard was a flaming ginger color. Black dye was unobtainable in the army. It is also interesting to note that while my father was born in Three Rivers, Canada, he was brought back from Canada at the age of two, and he, supposing he was a U.S. citizen because of his father's nationality, had voted in elections here for over 50 years. It was not until he applied for a passport to Jamaica, those had gone into effect during the Second World War, that he discovered his name was listed in the federal records as a Canadian citizen. Inasmuch as in his earlier days he had always voted for Eugene Debs, 
It's unlikely that his vote had any effect on national contest. Father, whom my mother always referred to at that seat, was never one to like working for someone else, and soon gave up carpentering and bought a small dry goods store which also catered to school children in District School 18, which was just across Main Street from our new home over the store and the one I went to during my public school days. None in my immediate family had been to college, nor was it customary at that time to think it was necessary. Only two cousins had gone beyond the high school. One, Clarence Brooks, the son of Levi Brooks, did, and afterwards successfully taught English. The other, Adelbert Brooks, the son of Stephen Brooks, uh, both of older brothers of my mother, went to Ann Arbor in Michigan. He was said to play the piano beautifully. Our upright was not in proper tune, and he refused to play that when he visited us. He wore gloves to protect his hands, and that caused comment in the family. During the Spanish-American War, he enlisted and was assigned to the medical corps, but got no farther than Florida, where he was taken sick from poison canned meat and invalided out. That ended the gloves and the piano playing. Many years later, in 1936, when I was out in San Francisco with Floyd Gibbons covering the U.S. fleet maneuvers for Cosmopolitan magazine, I visited him and my uncle Stephen, who was by then blind. Delbert was now a humdrum clerk in some business with almost no interest of any kind. After I had finished school and had decided I wanted to be an artist, having gone to the Rochester Mechanics Institute and studied art for some time, my father arranged to apprentice me for three years for training in the art department of the Stecker Lithographic Company, a German firm several generations old. The end of the three years, with solid training in commercial art, I took the $350 coming to me from the apprenticeship and over the art director's protest, and went in 1910 to the Art Institute of Chicago. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was the end of my life in Rochester. Henceforth, I saw my family only spasmodically. During vacations, I spent much time with my Aunt Caroline and Uncle Squire in West Sweden, reliving happy childhood days in that tiny hamlet whereas a boy had made daily rounds of my Uncle Cooper's shop, Charlie Roberts' blacksmith shop, Mr. Alonzo Kimball's tiny store and post office, and the McCulloch's across the road, and forays to a red astrakhan apple tree down the hill beyond the dusty old wooden Methodist church. Correction on the above. School 18 was on North Street, not Main, opposite our home, and the country store and the post office in, in West Sweden was 
was run by Alonzo Pulis, P-U-L-I-S, not Alonzo Kimball. But to get back to my art school days, I went to the Chicago Art Institute for about four years of excellent art training, starving a very different form of drawing and painting from that in the sector lithograph shop. All in all, it was the month, uh, most happy, crowded time, but I had several outside jobs to stretch out my $350 nest egg. I worked at the auditorium theater uh, nights and uh, Wednesday matinee and heard three seasons of opera there. Lunchtime, it was over to the Flaxman cafeteria near the Chicago Post Office, which also gave me my noonday meal. In late afternoons, I dropped into the small Felton Advertising Agency and did odd art jobs, which gave me pocket money. And for a time, I slept in an undertaking establishment, answering the phone to find out if the call was for a Catholic or a Protestant funeral, loaded the necessary accoutrements into a taxi, which was to pick up the undertaker, then went back to bed. Before that, I lived in a rooming house on the north side of Ontario several other artists, including George Grant, who I was no better at coming to New York. Chicago in those days was a tough city hold up men and gangsters shooting it out at each other. We trip home at night after the across the Chicago River Bridge was not without a head. Later, I lived with Theodore King, the red the artist. On the south side, there's a problem as well, but calmer neighbors. In 1914, I came east to New York to try my luck in the company of the Mars, the mother, and Anita Parker. And we lived for a time in West Orange, New Jersey, in a dull street, a dull suburban house. We soon moved into New York to an apartment on Riverside Drive at 115th Street. I had found a position as assistant art director of the Ethics Company facing Madison Square that turned out drawing for advertising companies. Later, I shared a studio with Norman Borchardt at 115 5th Avenue, where Steve Gutz, the photographer, had the top floor of the old brownstone house. In the meantime, the European War with Germany had broken out. Both Norman and, Norman and I were fascinated with the idea of flying in it, swayed largely by the handsome appearance of the Lafayette, the Violet, the French planes. Our attempt to join them got nowhere. We turned to our own Air Force, but we were again blocked by the fact that neither of us had had two years of college. Both of us were doing very well with our art careers, but we persisted and wrote letters War Department in America entered the war on the Allied side, outlining our equivalent schooling. Nothing appeared to count it. As the spring of 1917 advanced, I put a small motorboat I owned on the Hudson into the water to enjoy that at least. I just pulled away from the dock at 149th Street when I failed, and the message gave me that I'd been accepted in the air service. Norman Pett later joined up to Canada, where a flying accident during training put him in the hospital for months, and he subsequently married his nurse, Merlin. After induction, I was sent to the University of Texas at Boston. At 
for a course of ground school six weeks. By then, the mid-summer had come to seldom drop below 153. It had been years since I had had any school training, and the course nearly stumped me, especially the radio drill, drill where we were required to stand and see ten words a minute. But I straight through among the top ten. The reward, they said, was to be sent to France for flying trips. Ordered to Mineola, Long Island, we joined the ten similar groups awaiting shipment overseas. There we were informed that the hundred of us were sent to Italy instead. We changed all our funds to Italian lira. My father came to New York to say goodbye. At the train, he choked up, and to reassure him, I said, I'll come back, I'll come back. I certainly had no hint from crystal ball, but in the end, at long last, we went by train to Halifax, Nova Scotia, where we were to board the Carmania for the trip across the ocean. We were under the command of Major Leslie McGill, Captain Fioretta LaGuardia, and Albert Spaulding, the violinist, who were to teach us Italian during the voyage. Elliot Springs was our cadet captain, and Mac Ryder was under him. We were in a large convoy with a cruiser as escort. There was a regiment of green troops aboard who were given rifle practice each day, and there was considerable danger from wildly fired shots. When we arrived in Liverpool Harbor, there was another change, and we were to be kept in England for flying, and another group sent to Italy. By train to Oxford, part of our group installed in Queen's College, the others split up and billeted in other colleges. Now I was back in the land of my forebears and loved There we were given another six weeks of ground school, differing only slightly from our course in the States. Again, I nearly flunked out on radio. When I got to the front of France, I never saw a radio set. It was only used by planes that directed artillery fire, which wasn't our job. While at Oxford, several of us explored the nearby countryside, sometimes on rented bicycles. The quaint towns, each one with its own individual characteristics, and the quiet, homey inns where we had tea. Americans were something of an oddity to the natives, but they were most friendly. The rules in the college were most strict, and there was an air of military tradition that must be observed especially at mess time. In the great college dining room, the staff sat in quiet dignity at a separate head table, and it was an inflexible rule. There, there could be no great amount of talk or smoking at the long table until the king's health had been drunk in court. And no one was allowed out of the college after nine o'clock without special permission. It was explained to us by one of the senior officers that Oxford over the years had been the melting pot for all the races and the da danger from venereal disease was everywhere. We were moved from Queen's College to Brazenose and to Exeter for short periods, but the discipline never relaxed. Our American forming up the march of classes was quite different from the British. It was a source of amusement to them. 
There must be no smoking along the route, and a couple of our southern boys took to chewing tobacco. It ended one evening a near tragedy when one of them turned into our own quadrangle, stumbled and fell flat on the stone surface. When he picked himself up, it looked in the half-light as if one side of his face was a bloody mess. Fortunately, it turned out to be splattered tobacco, tobacco juice. After the six weeks course there, we were shipped to Grantham in the Midlands for an additional six weeks on Lewis and Vickers machine guns, inasmuch as there was still no room at flying schools. A few British officers commanded us, and the mess traditions were strictly kept up. We were still orphans, as far as the American staff in London was concerned, but towards the end of the time in Grantham, an announcement was flashed on movie screen. All Americans returned to base to receive back pay. It was not only joyful news to our cadets, but also the merchants of the town who had not been enjoying the lavish spending supposed to be prevalent among Americans. At the end of the Grantham course, we were again put up into small groups and assigned flight schools. Note, now switch to the other reel, which covers our stay at the marvelously interesting home defense squadron at Hanoi Farm. And now to get on with the account after our transfer from Hainault Farm. It was a terrific letdown from the easy, non-regimented life there. The conditions were crowded at Stanford, and for several weeks while we resumed our firing training, we were billeted in a barn-like, unheated wooden building that had last been used as a pest house for contagious disease. The sheet iron stoves wouldn't draw and smoke filled the drafty structure. If it had been summer, it might not have been bad, but it was mid-January. The lorry picked us up and took us about three miles into Stamford where the mess was. One of my friends, Bill Mooney, who came from a wealthy family in Indianapolis, took matters into his own hands and without permission left and moved into the best hotel in Stamford, had a fire kept in his room, tipped lavishly, and lived well. It was to see a great deal of it. I was to see a great deal of him all through the war, and he underwent two hardships throughout the whole time. The English authorities must have been a bit shamefaced about our quarters in the pest house, and one of the other boys, Hilary Rex and I, were billeted with a fine elderly keeper of the public bath in Stamford. Hillary was a tiny, cheerful soul who went out to the front on Hanley pages and needed several seat cushions to raise him high enough to see over the instrument panel of the big Hanley. He was shot down and killed near the end of the war. My new instructor was a Lieutenant Eastwood, who, when he saw the amount of duel I had had, said he'd soon have me off solo. However, after a few times, he was to let me do the landings. There was a misunderstanding, and I thought he was to take over at the last minute, as he had been doing. 
result was that the BE landed it itself damned hard, and we went over on our backs. No one was hurt, but he decided I'd need some more duel. When I finally did go solo, eight, eight hours and all, it was as everyone discovers one of the most thrilling moments anyone can experience. How could anybody not notice the change in my appearance? I was a pilot. Ignoring the fact that whereas before the war started, only a handful of people had learned to fly, now it was being multiplied by hundreds, and many were not much more than young schoolboys. Meanwhile, we were moved again to a tiny quaint village called Easton on the Hill, much nearer the aerodrome. It consisted of a manor-type large building, behind a weathered, vine-covered old brick wall, and we were given no permission to visit us. Nearby was a lovely old stone church, its vestry, lovely garden, and a square-built, cheerful padre who showed his church's prized possession a silver chalice dating back to medieval times. We were billeted in the stone cottage nearby, and transportation picked us up for breakfast at the airfield and other meals at the mess in Stamford. The weather was often dismal with low-lying fog that made flying impossible day after day. Clark Nickel, who had been with us at Haynall Farm, was more impatient than the rest of us and kept badgering his instructor to let him go solo. Finally, given a reluctant permission, he went up spun into the ground and was killed. I took up a photographer and snapped pictures of the funeral procession winding through the streets of Stamford. Another episode that occurred there made a lasting impression on me. One of my close friends confided that he suspected he had picked up a venereal disease and, avoiding the military doctors, was to consult a local Stamford doctor. He told me, if it's true, I'm going to do a Clark Nickel and kill myself in the plane. After seeing the doctor, who had confirmed his suspicion, but the doctor had assured him it was an easy matter to cure it. He was given several shots and continued to fly in spite of a sore bottom. Then the doctor, who was the local health officer, believing that my friend's activities were interfering with his recovery, must have infected him with a mild case of measles and had him put into the hospital where he could go on with his cure. I remember seeing him at the hospital as he was recovering. It was the time of the March German offensive when the English had to retreat in a hurry. My friend commented with a grin, I guess we'd better get the first ship home. It looks like the war's over. I continued to pile up solo time, and several of us were sent to Thetford Flying School up in Norfolk, not too far from Grantham. There I flew RE-8s and at last progressed to DH-9s, the plane I was to fly in France. About to finish my training on 9s, I again became overconfident and got permission to fly down to Rochester, 
south of London, where I'd heard that Quentin Brand was about to go back to France again in command of a new night-flying squadron. I made one of my most perfect landings, in case he was watching, only to discover that Brand had already left for the front. The trip home was uneventful, and when I got over the Thetford Aerodrome, they were just pushing the planes back in the hangars out of the rain. I spotted the wind sock, and it seemed to be in the same direction as when I had left. I showed off my skill by doing all the tricks a nine would do and came in to land. I was about to touch down, and to my horror, it was evident that the wind had completely shifted direction while I'd been gone, and I was landing down the hill and downwind. We rolled a few feet in coarse gravel and went over on our backs. It was most embarrassing and tough work helping the mechanics push the plane uphill in the driving rain. Again, my instructor said I'd need a few more landings before he graduated me. But my solo time was adding up. Then, Bill Mooney and I were sent to a fighting school at Marsh on the coast of the North Sea up towards Scotland. Here we were taught to defend ourselves against fighter planes and did a lot of practicing firing and bombing targets on the ground. One day in the midst of diving on one, I suddenly found my gun wouldn't fire unless I pulled up on a handle to put my hydraulic system under pressure. It only took brief seconds, but the plane had gathered such momentum that the speed had built up to over 160 miles an hour, and I only pulled out of the dive in the nick of time before crashing. There was an odd rule at Marsh. It was if a call came through for reinforcements to France, Instead of picking men who were partly through the finishing course, they picked those who had just reported for training. Bill and I were lucky to stay and graduate. I had been assigned an observer who had a girlfriend living in a Cliffside hotel at Redcar, and he kept pestering me to fly alongside her third-floor room and toss in a note. It was a tricky maneuver, and after a couple of tries, I was fed up with a useless risk. But I cured him by flying long distance out over the North Sea and doing a series of stall turns over the water, and then pulling up vertically, and as the plane stalled, whipped it with the rudder to fall either to the right or left. The passenger was never prepared for this, and it gave his stomach a terrific wrench. He poked my back and implored me to get back to land and for about, forgot about the notes to his girlfriend. When Bill's and my orders came through sending us to France, they specifically said to report to London and proceed over the overseas without delay. Our pleas for a couple of days' leave in London convinced the soft-hearted lieutenant at Flying Corps headquarters, and he extended them. Bill and I checked into the Savoy Hotel and flung ourselves into enjoying our last leave. I ran across a New York friend, a captain, who had been 
especially helpful when I first arrived there from Chicago. And Walter Enright and I sat up the last night in London until all hours while Bill Mooney was busy with his own friends. We barely made the boat train from Waterloo and the haze of hangovers. I had snatched up a morning paper at the station and on the train ride to Folkestone to make the channel crossing, we immediately turned to the official report of the day's activities of the Air Force. At the end of end of it, after <coughs> listing our victories, Mooney read in a strangled voice a report that 60 of our aircraft failed to return. The truth probably is it was nearer 100. And again he launched into his familiar plaint, we certainly are in the wrong branch of the service. We're in for it. But we agreed it was probably too late to turn back. Arrived at Boulogne on a destroyer, we were sent by train to a pilot school inland. Here our order sent us two different uh, DH-9 squadrons, Bill to 211 and I to 206. A flying corps tender picked us up separately the next day, and it was the last time I saw Mooney until long after the war ended when we ran into each other <laughs> at a baseball game in Philadelphia. I arrived at 206, established in a rolling French countryside near a village called Alkeen, to find it busy with its work as the intelligence squadron of the British Second Army under General Plummer, holding the line that ran through deep and southwest of the Somme front. I was billeted in the Nissen hut, set on a hillside across the road from the flying field with about six other officers. There were two other American pilots from our group there, Harry Schlotzauer and Doug Steyer, two others who had originally been there gone. A fellow named Cheston had been shot down and killed, and Leach had been badly wounded in the shoulder and was back in England in the hospital. Later, both Schlotzauer and Steyer were transferred away to American squadron, and I was the only one in the U.S. Air Service to remain. There were other Americans who had come in through Canada, one named Welch and a Canadian named Bobby Burns sort of took me under his wing. They were busy, and it was several days until I was given the plane, and Bobby took me over to the field to let me try my wings in France. Don't get far from the field, or you might get lost. We've lost several that way. The nines in France were a bit different than I was used to, and a throttle adjustment to give extra air to the carburetor at high altitude was strange to me. On my first takeoff, I opened it wide, and on the run down the field, the engine sputtered, and I only stopped my run, turned around, and tried again. The, new, the view aloft was a joy, and I cruised around within sight of the aerodrome, aerodrome, enjoying a good time and picking up landmarks. Suddenly, I saw a, very, a red very pistol shell arcing up the ground, and hurriedly made a landing. Bobby calmly announced, I was getting bored. Come on up to the mess and let's have a drink. 
The British forces are ruled strictly by tradition. The Army and Navy had their rules set down over the centuries, but the budding air services were a puzzle, and it had been decided to let them go their own way until a solution had been revealed. It was up to the squadron commanders. Some were most abstemious, only drinking a glass of port as toast to change health at dinner. Others were given a free run. Ours was one of the latter. When Bobby lost an observer and had to pick a substitute from a new lot that had come out, he could them without enthusiasm. Ordering a roll of whiskey set up on the bar, he turned to the group of newcomers. Anyone among you that want to race me to the middle, he asked, only one step forward. It was a square-set fellow we afterwards got to know and like. Pop Brothers nearly won the race. 206 duties covered a wide range. There was the dawn and evening mine patrol, an easy job in which the observer took notice of what was happening just beyond the enemy line. It was not easy to determine where the line was at the time, and if you strayed too far across, the German ground fire was wicked. Then a more tiring mission was a long reconnaissance covering several towns as much as 30 miles down their side to find out what was happening, whether they were separate as preparing to fall back and burning material or making preparation for a push, bringing up troops, concentrating ambulances, or with trains to steam up to bring in reinforcements. The Germans tried to prevent those forays, and after we had lost several planes, they sent out two of us one to get the information, the other to fly guard above the above to drive off the attackers. I did enough to continue with my 1918 service in France. I was assigned a very staunch Welsh observer from Cardiff, a Lieutenant Perry, about 32 or 34, who had been a machine gunner on the ground at Gallipoli. He knew very little about planes, had trouble telling the difference between German or our own types. When anything came up on our tail, he just blazed away with his two Lewis guns. It gave me a feeling of confidence, but also embarrassment when he almost hit one of our own SE-5s that came up playfully on our way back from the line. We had another additional irritation. We shared our airfield with a squadron of night bombers, huge Hanley Pages and FEs, who came and went all night long while we were trying to sleep, sometimes followed home by German night flyers who'd bomb us. Then during our daylight missions, when we arrived back home tired and uncertain, about the condition of our planes after a fight, they were up, rested, and testing their engines and keen to practice dogfighting with us. Several of our fellows, properly annoyed, said, if one of them gets in my way, I'm tempted to shoot the beggar down. The summer went on with a variety of missions, including some daylight bomb dropping on targets until in late September, when the Second Army began a sustained push all along our line 
We were called on to fly as many as seen four reconnaissance trips a day and were all nearly near exhausted. Then began a series of actions that ended on October 5th by my being shot down and taken prisoner. On an earlier bomb mission, our Major McLaren, who had quit flying, decided it would save time and petrol if we got into formation on the ground and a signal from the flight leader we would all open up and take off together. On the morning he chose, there was a crosswind to contend with. I was flying first right, and as the leader got off the ground, he slid in front of me and I couldn't seem to lift off. It was nip and tuck, and I was rapidly approaching a hangar. We had no brakes then, filled with loaded handy pages. The last minute, I hoiked the plane off the ground, but the nine stalled over the hangar, lost flying speed, and headed downward, just missing it, and crashed sideways to the ground. I had only a second to warn Pering to brace himself. The engine went off through the wings, and our two bombs were flying sidewise, their wind vanes torn off. The petrol tank burst, showering us, with the others getting off, it must have looked like an explosion. A knob attached to the instrument panel shot backwards, <coughs> backwards, but I was leaning over to switch off the engine. There was no fire. Shakily, we both slid to the ground. Herring had a bloody nose, and there was a cut on my left cheek where the knob had scratched it going by. The Major came up puffing, his bathrobe flying over his pajamas, the grass to gasp out gratefully, You're all right. I had one of the best engines in our flight, and I blurted out, I'm sorry, sir, about that lovely engine. But Laren brushed that aside and giving me a pat on the shoulder, assured me we'd get another. I had never again had one as good. Then began a battle with faulty engines. I persuaded the Major that I was okay from the crash and to let me go up to the plane pool about 15 miles away to get a new nine. Pering begged off going, said he had a bridge game on, but he may have had enough flying with me for that day. So I got another observer to go with me, promising him a stop for tea on the way over. Before we left, I went up to the hangars to watch the rest of the flight come back from the raid. The look on their faces when they saw that we'd survived the crash was something to see. At the pool, we picked up the new plane. I felt a bit shaky taking off, but once in the air, that passed, and I felt at ease again. I kept notes on the way home of the engine behavior, its revs, temperature, and so forth. It seemed fairly good. However, after we landed, my engine mechanic came over to ask how it was. After I'd reported to him, he tried to turn the prop over and found it frozen. For days, while the plane was on the ground, they fussed with it, running it for hours. Each time on flights over the lines, it acted badly. 
and one rainy afternoon it disintegrated in the air, chewing up pistons inside. We hadn't quite reached the lines, and I swung around and made for home. We still had a couple of bombs aboard, but no place to drop them to lighten the load. I found we couldn't reach our home field, but had to pick another. Gliding in over a hangar in the room in the rain, I found I'd need more power to clear it, and got in one noisy, rattling burst, just enough to clear the obstruction, and we plopped down just in front of the hangar. A couple of mechanics looked the engine over, handed out a handful of piston parts, and said it was unflyable. Our squadron sent a car over to pick Kering and me up. On the road home, we comforted ourselves with the idea that we certainly would need to go on the early morning mission. Before leaving the plane at the other airdrome, I removed the watch from the instrument board and slipped it into my pocket. We were instructed to do this. The watch apparently was more important than the plane. Back at the home field, I found a letter waiting for me that gave a picture of someone else's troubles as well as mine. It was from Bill Mooney at 211 Squadron, illustrating his old theme that flying was surely drafty and dangerous. He wrote, Listen to what happened to me this week. I was over the Bruges. We were all warned to stay away from there because of all the anti-aircraft guns protecting the submarine fence, but he must have strayed over there off course. When the stuff began coming up, I turned and beat it. I was almost clear when there was a terrific jolt and the shell got a direct hit on us just behind my observer. Scared, I tried my controls. They all worked. So I headed for Dunkirk, hoping to land on the beach. My observer, a little limey, having more time to assess the damage, leaned over me and said, I think if you don't throw it about too much, sir, you could land it on our air drop. I took his advice, and having a little breathing spell, looked back at the tail. There was a great gaping hole with fabric streaming into the wind, letting in more drafts. I nursed it back to our field. The other planes gave me a clear run for the landing, and I set it down real soft. In order to clear away for the others, I quickly taxied toward the hangars. We rolled a couple of yards and the poor old thing broke in the middle, and we squatted on the ground. Neither of us was hurt, but the shell, the fuse must have been set to explode higher, and it had carried away spare drums of his Lewis gun ammunition. Will. However, the next morning, when we went up to the flying field to watch the others go off, Captain Roberts, my flight commander, said, a fresh plane has flown over last night, hasn't been tested, so we'll tack you one to the end of the formation. If it's no good, you better come back. There was not much time before the rest were ready to go, and Faring found out that he had no spare parts for his guns. But I said to hell with it, we'll go. On the way to the lines, I soon found the engine was not good enough. I could keep my place in the formation but a hundred feet below the others. I wondered if I should go back, but inasmuch as I'd come home crippled a couple of times, 
I began to think they might feel that I didn't want to go to the war and kept down. Nearing Courtray, which we were to bomb, I sighted a flock of enemy planes coming down out of the sun. I motioned Perrin to fire a very light with his pistol. He got off one shot, but everyone must have been setting their bomb sights, and I motioned him to fire another. By that time, the Fockers were upon us. The first fellows got some shots in under my tail. Horrified, I noticed he had set me on fire, probably from the grease and oil on the underside. Panicky, I took my feet off the controls and began stamping out the blade. We had no chutes for escape, and we spun down while I whipped out some burning fabric beside me. That done, I pulled out of the spin to find my friends a thousand or more feet above us fighting off the attack. Also, several fockers had spun down with me to finish the job. From then on, it was one diving attack after another, and I became hopelessly confused. The sun hadn't risen above some low clouds. I lost all sense of direction and might be heading straight into Germany. Bullets had never come so close to me in all my time over the lines. I looked back and turned, and thin firing was nowhere to be seen. I was desperate, and when one of the foxes dove down on me head on, I realized it was probably the end. It was not a question of guts, but I decided I'd crash into him. Looking through my oldest sight, he seemed to be approaching like a slow-moving picture. I fired a long burst of my gun into where he sat, the bullets stitching the pattern towards the Hun pilot. I got a clear picture of a yellow comet painted on the side of the fuselage. I kept straight on, keeping up the fire, and bracing for the crash. He swerved under me, and I was hit by one of his bullets. It didn't hurt at the time, just jammed me back into my seat. I tried to watch and see if he went down, but one of his brothers fired at us. This kept up, with another Fokker joining the scrap. Then, several seconds later, my engine stopped, and a delightful quiet reigned. There was nothing to do but land, and I picked a nice green field not a hundred feet beneath us. I had no idea whether I was landing downwind or not, but it seemed to spell safety and nobody shot at us. Just ready to sit down, Perring bobbed up and said, Where are we? It was really his job to keep track, but thinking the war was going on for another year or two, and me in high flying boots, I yelled back, get my shoe out of the back before you burn it, which we had been warned to do if we landed in enemy territory. Because we were to land at a new airfield after the raid, I had stashed several things in the plane that there was no room for in my kit that was going over by road, among them a, pa a pair of shoes. He answered, the hell with your shoe, get out as soon as we're on the ground. There was new wheat just peeping above the ground. We rolled a little and flipped over on our backs. I unhooked my belt, fell out, carrying was beside me with its very pistol and fired into the petrol tank, but it didn't burn. 
German soldiers were pelting across the field from a small headquarters in a Belgian house on a nearby road. Fortunately, they were unarmed, and so were we. I felt groggy now and sat down beside the wrecked plane, and so did Perry. I imagine we made a sorry picture. He took off his helmet and held his head in his two hands, saying, My girl will sure worry about me. The Germans gathered around us in a circle, and I picked out phrases like Schweifliga Schwein, but they made no real signs of violence. Then a German Red Cross sergeant came puffing up and took charges. I found I had difficulty in walking. He got on one side and hurrying on the other, and we limped over to a Belgian house used as a headquarters. There was long wait while they did a lot of telephoning, and I told Pering that I'd have to lie down. He helped me off with my fur-lined flying suit and spread it on the floor. Lying there, I summed up my predicament. Here we were, prisoners of the Germans, uncertain of what was ahead. I remembered the remarks of a rather silly southern girl I'd met in Austin while at the ground school there. She was all for glamorizing all males, but especially incipient aviators, and had probably been fed on all sorts of horror stories going around about the cool treatment of the German beasts. Just think, she said, if you're shot down by them, you may be boiled down for soap, and someday when I reach for the soap in my bath, it'll be you. Well, I must hurry to say that in all the time I was a prisoner in German hospitals, there was never any cruelty. He found most of them were just people like us. A Polish soldier in the bed next to mine did his best, in spite of language difficulties, to get me to swap my wristwatch for a huge silver turnip he carried. But he gave up quickly when I told him definitely no. And the German doctors were wonderful, and I'm sure I owe my right leg to a perfect job a 35-year-old surgeon did on cleaning it out and removing all the fur from my flying suit. After a wait, a small, black-suited, white-haired Belgian doctor came in to put a temporary dressing on my leg. He was amused by my BVDs. The Germans all wore long underclothes with a drawstring at the ankles. He did some quick probing of the wound, removed some pieces of explosive jacket on the bullet, and handed him them to me with souvenir laguerre. Two Belgian women who lived on the second floor came and watched. They asked permission to get me some brandy, went clattering up the stairs and came back with a tumbler full. I drank it down while the doctor paused, and I felt better, and he finished the job. I saw a German soldier come into the room with a map from our plane and finally made him understand I wanted my shoes in the back. He returned not only with my shoes, but a short leather jacket, a scarf, and the shoes which I kept. It is easy at a time like that to attach a great deal of importance to such small things. In all my transfers to at least five different German hospitals, 
the shoe disappeared somewhere, and it was weeks later before I missed them. The, German, <clears throat> the Germans fixed up a crude stretcher from a couple of poles and pieces of burlap, carried me outside where a German had a camera set up and took bearings in my picture. We turned left and went down the main street of a village called Mark, not far from Courtray. They turned into a house a hundred yards beyond while Perring was led on farther. Seeing we were going to be separated, my observer halted and called back, If I get back to London first, I'll tell him you're all right. It was the last I saw. I was put into a <clears throat> bank of, bunk of straw in one of the downstairs rooms and must have gone to sleep at once. It was nearly dark when two Belgian women woke me with some soup while I, I ate it. They kept questioning me about something and finally pointed to their ring finger to find out if I was married. When I said no, it seemed to reassure them that I had no wife who would worry about me. After dark, an ambulance came. I was loaded in with a couple of others. One was a pilot of, our, of ours from the same formation, but he must have crashed badly as he was unable to talk. Arrived in Courtray, we were offloaded into a hospital in a stone building that must have been previously a museum. There I was given an anti-tetanus injection and given a meal, while I, where I saw my first black bread. On the way, I had torn out pages of an address book with the names of friends and various schools in England, chewed them up and scattered them around the ambulance, and felt better. At the hospital, there was another pilot from that hapless morning formation, a fellow I didn't like particularly, and did less then as he proceeded to smoke up all my cigarettes. In the morning after breakfast, I was taken outside to a waiting ambulance. When overhead, there came a formation of nines, probably from my own squadron, to dose the town with bombs. The Germans immediately set my stretcher on the sidewalk and scuttled into the protection of the stone building. I could almost identify who was flying first, right, and left. I watched them fascinated until an anti-aircraft gun on a truck down the street opened up on them. When the shell fragments came pelting down, I pulled a blanket over my head, and after the raid, the soldiers came from the building and had a good laugh at me, a little of my own medicine. The ambulance drove a long way, and it was nightfall when it pulled up at a hospital, and we were unloaded by lantern light. It gave them considerable amusement when, as they read our labels, they found out that they had a truly mixed bag, Franzosen, Englisher, Americana, and two Italianer. I later found it was at a place called Dance, again in a stone building with tall windows on the banks of a canal with a railway bridge spanning it. 
I was put on a pile of straw on the floor beside a coal stove and spent a miserable night. I needed a lavatory badly, but no orderly would pay attention. At last, I dragged my bandaged leg across the floor and, kneeling, relieved myself in a coal bucket, causing a furor among the others, but I ignored their com complaints and <coughs> crawled back to my straw pile, sleeping fitfully and festered with violent dreams. In the morning, I was moved into a comfortable bed in a large ward filled with German wounded, but no allied ones. I had no appetite for their food, thin cabbage soup, black bread, and cheese. I traded my cheese with the pole in the next bed for his cigarettes. The nights were hell, what with bad dreams and steady raids by our handy pages on the railway bridge across the canal. There would be an ominous silence when they shut off their engines and dropped their bombs. Then the racket of their explosions and the slow topping of walls and the crash of breaking glass from the windows in our ward. More gunfire and then gradual silence. Soon a new crop of wounded would be brought in and the doctors busy. Fortunately, our beds were in the center of the room, and we were spared the last splinters. I was there a matter of a week or more, and then another ambulance trip that brought us up to Ghent, still in Belgium. The orderlies were mostly Britishers who had been caught in the march push and believed in taking life easy from now on and would do nothing for us, especially off. It was there that I met a London patient named Driver who belonged to a Scots regiment. He was furious, especially as some of the lazy orderlies came from his own regiment. It was there that the fine German surgeon got around to properly cleaning out my wound. During the preparations, while I was threading long probe with cotton lint, he and the nurse conferred, and he finally said in fair English, This will give you pain, but it is necessary. Partway through the ordeal, when I asked for Wasser, they stopped at once and gave me a glass of wine. After about a week or two, we were taken to the railway station for shipment to Antwerp. Both driver and I were half sick with the flu. The reason for the steady withdrawal northwards, I've figured out since, was the astonishing success of the Allied drive all along our front. Why this hadn't occurred to me before, as we were the intelligence squadron of the Army and should have realized it, but drives that started well often floundered later. But I think by this time the Germans realized the jig was up. From the railway station in Antwerp, we were put on streetcars with blacked-out windows and unloaded at a brick schoolhouse in the heart of the city. I was taken on my stretcher up winding stairs to a room lined with blackboards on the second floor. There were nothing but prisoners in the room, about 15 altogether, 
some bed patients, some ambulatory. A French cavalryman with a bandaged head, his bullet-pierced helmet on the table beside him, a French Senegalese black man wounded in the foot, several Italian prisoners taken on the piav and worked as laborers hauling munitions behind the lines in Belgium, a Dublin policeman who had lost an arm in the march push, and a few Englishmen. Doctors dressed my leg every day. A big, violent German nurse in her kindly way helped. Soldiers in other wards discovered our black Senegalese. They appeared to have never seen one before and came to our doorway and sniggered. At first he resented it, but later came to feel he was the star attraction in the ward and began to take on airs. When a rosy-cheeked, well-rounded friend of our nurse came on visit to see the Sangalese, even made proposals of marriage to her. As soon as she understood, she blushed violently and retreated in haste and confusion. Somewhere about the 11th of November, we heard wild firing in the streets, and a soldier came into our ward, and seeing a red-covered book on my table, held it up to the rest of the ward and said, Aliman, Franzosen, Englisher, Americana, all comrades. Next morning, our nurse came into the ward in great hysteria and made us understand she and the doctors had been ordered back to Germany. It was later revealed that, according to the armistice provisions, the Germans must get out of Belgium in the same amount of time that they had taken to invade the country. Everything stopped in our ward. No one came to dress our wounds. No meals were brought up to us. There was no supervision of any kind. Some of the Italians who could walk went somewhere and brought we fed patients food. This went on for a couple of days. Then mysteriously, our nurse reappeared, but no doctors. She changed my bandages with a certain amount of care, and we wondered how long she'd continue. Finally, one evening, a German officer who spoke French brought in two representatives of the Belgian Red Cross. He was explaining that they planned to take all wounded prisoners back to Germany and pointed out how well they had taken care of us. But the Belgians insisted they take us over. Nothing happened until the next morning when eager but clumsy Belgian stretcher bearers took us down the winding stairs to little one-man go-kart carriages. The nurse appeared and insisted they cover us with another blanket, and my man came back with at least six, but on the way over to the Belgian hospital took most of them up to his flat. There were crowds on the street who peered in curiously at us, and one woman panted up to thrust a little bag of candy into my go-kart. The Belgian hospital, the Clinique de la Esperance, staffed by nuns, was warm, comfortable, and luxurious. The driver and I, as officers, were put into one 
lovely room overlooking a tiny garden with handsome trees and winter-blighted shrubbery. We were there for a long time, and I became thoroughly bored by a driver whose bed faced a full-length mirror. He'd begin, he'd begin a sentence and for the rest of the time admire his own reflection. A couple of English flyers came to visit us who had crashed badly on landing and had severe burns on their faces, their ragged beards, a massive sticky lotion. When the Belgian king and queen, Albert and Elizabeth, were due to return to Antwerp, we were invited to her home facing the main carnival by a wealthy English woman. Driver refused to go because his Scotch uniform had been cut from him, and although they offered to fit him out with some makeshift clothes, he stubbornly refused to leave his bed. I went in a wheelchair. I still had my uniform jacket. There were many Belgian and Dutch people gathered in the immense drawing room overlooking the avenue. My hostess asked if I spoke Flemish or French, and regretfully I said no. Very well, she said, we'll all speak English. And they all did, even groups in the far corners of the room. My face was badly broken out from tetanus injection I had had, and I must have been a sight, what with hair that hadn't been cut for over two months. They couldn't have been kinder to me. One woman brought me up a withered rose strewn on the pavement before the king would trot on it. After a time, the English friars, who could get out on the streets, ran into a British major who was unaware we were still there. The British army had veered off to Cologne and didn't come near Antwerp. He promised them He'd have some ambulance pick us up, and we waited, worried for days. When Ryder and I were loaded into cars, there was my little Scotch boy, not so uncomfortable now, and the single East black men, both glad to see it. We went south over the wintry, rutted roads and got to Brussels after dark to find the city all lit up, the end of the war blackout. We were kept overnight in the hospital, and on the next day went on to Wimereau, France, on the coast at Lady Hatfield's private hospital to a warm welcome as returned prisoners of war and treated to champagne. It was Christmas Eve, and there was a big party, and Elner Glynn came and sat on my bed. The walking wounded were celebrating in another part of the hospital, and a British major with a bad jaw wound and his head encased in a wire birdcage sort of contraption came in plastered and happy. How he'd managed to get his drinks in through the birdcage was a mystery, but he certainly had. After about a week, we were taken to the port and put on a ship for the channel crossing. At Dover, where we were landed, I was greeted by a Red Cross official who I'd known as a salesman for the Secker Lithograph Company in Rochester. I was taken by train to a hospital at Dartford, England, not too far from London. 
The leg was very slow to heal, but I, I could get around on crutches and went to London several times visiting my old haunts. On one of these trips, I ran into Elliot Springs at the Savoy Hotel. He seemed surprised to find me alive, and the meeting was to have quite an impact on my future career as an illustrator in the late 1920s. This about finishes the capsule recollections of my World War I experiences. From now on, it's a question of getting healed and back to my drawings. Yes, the war was over, but whether or not it was, as we had fondly believed in the beginning, the war to end war took on a second thought air of doubt. 